Hello, Tulsa. Hello, Adam. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fine. I'm great. My ankle's still swollen, though. Yeah. Yep. Good. Good. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am mobile with crutches only. Otherwise, you can just call me Peg Leg. Because I only have one working leg right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you wake up this morning and think, you know what I want to do? I want to listen to a horrible story about a horrible man and get kind of sad and angry about it. Yeah, I did to just get my mind off the fact that I have to shower on a lawn chair in the bathroom. <laughs> because if I don't, I will fall yet again and hurt myself again. I mean, you were just having comfortable showers. <clears throat> I wash myself with a rag on a stick. <laughs> okay, so this week we're going back to the Emerald Isle. I will say before people get too into this, I'm going to put a trigger warning in right here. This is a fairly graphic story and it is true crime. So this week's sources are the Irish Times, the Irish Independent, DublinLive.ie and another podcast that I found uh, called Men's Rea Podcast. And this person did a fantastic job covering this. And I would highly recommend going and listening to that episode. And one of her main sources was a book by a man called Stephen Ray. And the book's called Killers, Murders in Ireland. I couldn't get my hands on the book, which is why I ended up using um, the Men's Rea Podcast as a main source because she had the book and I didn't. So this is the story of Michael Bambrick. Born in England on September 16th, 1952, the third son of William and Edith Bambrick. His father had three daughters from a previous ma previous marriage, which apparently he never met. So he grew up with his uh, two older brothers who were both Absolutely normal people, um, apparently very hard-working and determined uh, dudes. The family moved to Ireland when he was five, living in Dublin slums, Keogh Square, before move, moving to Rossmore Road in Ballyfermot. And I actually looked into Keogh Square. Um, I don't really know why. And it was originally a barracks turned into social housing in the 20s and was actually said to be like, top quality like they were super proud of this social housing in the 20s um but obviously by 1957 they had deteriorated deteriorated into slums according to one of the articles that i read growing up he was a shithead basically he just didn't like doing what he was told had a bad temper um on one occasion he actually beat his own mother so bad that he left her covered in bruises what a dick. Yeah. Um, so, bad signs right from the get-go. He struggled with employment because he didn't want to be employed. <laughs> like, basically, this was his whole attitude, his whole life. He was just one of these people. He didn't appreciate working. Like, all he wanted to do was sit on his mom and dad's couch, and that was it, literally. In 1972, he met and married Marie Hayes, and they had a child together. He still refused to get a job. And while they were living together, Marie walked in on him 
uh, several times, as far as I know, and he was wearing women's clothes. Now, it didn't say whether it was her clothes or just, like, random clothes, which he got. Um, and she did ask him to stop because she wasn't into it. Again, this is the 70s in Ireland. So, you know, it was very socks on, lights off, no, no, no talking. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no um, eye contact. Yeah, I mean, I imagine. So, uh, anyway, yeah, she she wasn't into it. And he did go to counselling, but didn't continue it. Like, he didn't keep it up because that was just what he, the way he was. He didn't keep up on, on anything. It wasn't a nice relationship, as you can probably imagine. And one night, she woke up to him dressed in women's clothes. And he surprised her, obviously waking her up. He wrapped a pair of tights around her head, pinned her down, and choked her until she passed out. And when she came to, he raped her. On all of these, uh, like it goes forward to like this isn't the first time this happens. Or sorry, it, it might have been the first, but it's not the only time it happens. It always said that he wraps the pair of tights around her head. I'm not entirely sure how that. I would imagine like him wrapping tights around her head is just him trying to suffocate her. Mm. Obviously, because you know she she passed out shortly after this incident. She walked out on him, and he went back to live with his parents. This is an interesting part. In 1974, he enlisted with the army and was assigned to Cahalbrua Barracks, which is in Dublin. He lasted two months and then just went AWOL. For the, he was AWOL for two whole years. And what he was doing that whole time was sitting on his parents' couch, watching TV for two whole years. And the strangest part is he turned himself in. Like, he surrendered to the military police and was like, I'm back. I'm here. Sorry, lads. And uh, so I don't know what, like, the repercussions were or whatever. But they sent him back to the barracks, Cahalbrua, again. And that same night, he jumped over a wall and ran off again. What the fuck? Yeah. So, like, you know, just I, I honestly don't get it. So he continued to live with his parents until their death in the early 1980s. When he sold the family home, and I think he moved straight to St. Teresa Gar- Teresa's Gardens in Dublin, in the city centre. So here he gained a reputation as being quite a bit odd. This is a quote from the Irish Times. And I can only imagine this is how the, the woman was talking. We used to call him Josephine because he kept nicking knickers from the lion, said one woman. He was into children's clothes and young girls' bras. Our mothers didn't have much then. They couldn't afford him stealing things. So they would sit around at night and watch him and say, Not tonight, Josephine, we'd shout at him. That's hilarious. He would just grunt and go on his way, she said. So for those who couldn't (laughs) understand that, basically he was stealing underwear off people's clotheslines in the middle of the night. The ladies. Ladies, yeah, ladies' clothes. Um, and they called him Josephine. Yeah, they just, you know. <laughs> they slagged him. Yeah, Dublin people have uh, a fairly dark sense of humor. And at the time, they did not. They also didn't have much money. I think that was like during a recession and shit like that. So they literally couldn't afford him stealing their clothes. So they would stand guard for him every night. He was still living here in 1982 when he met Patricia Magali. We're going to hear her name a lot. She moved in with him 
and they had their first daughter, Adrian. Patricia was born and reared just off Cable Street in Dublin City. She went to school nearby and worked on several factory jobs, which was very common at the time. And she stayed local her, her whole life, you know, like that. her whole life was in this very small area of, of Dublin. She met her first husband, John Magali, while working one of these factory jobs in 1976. This relationship only lasted two years and they both drank far too much, far too often and argued quite a lot and he was very abusive. She moved back in with her mother until she met Bambrick. Shortly after the birth of Adrian, the family were rehoused in St. Ronan's Park in Clondalkin, where they had another daughter, Louise. So he was never working this entire time. The housing, like the the apartment or the flat that he was living in in St. Teresa's Garden, I'm assuming it didn't say, but I'm assuming was social housing. So he was placed there. Then once they were getting a bigger family, they were able to apply for a larger house. And that's just how that works. So... Again, he, he still wasn't working. They lived in Clondalkin, this uh, this house, for five years, but never had any real relationship with the neighbours other than the neighbours saying that they had often heard them arguing about drinking and arguing about Bambrick not having a job. He did work on and off as a bouncer and handyman, but never got an actual steady job. He was a petty criminal and ran up six convictions, one for indecent assault, the rest for burglary and larceny. One of these convictions was for stealing women's underwear. Yeah, so he had actually been arrested and was known by the guards. Oh yeah, real quick, the police in Ireland are called the Gardaí. The full name was on Gardaí Siakana, which is Gaelic for... The keepers of the peace. That's so fucking metal. Yeah, it it is like. I mean, anyway. <laughs> say it again. On Gardi Shiakana, or oh. as they say on the news, on Gardi Shiakana. That's fucking cool. Um, so I'll probably get mixed up and refer to them as the guards. So the guards means the police. Just putting that out there, because this won't be the only Irish story I do. So. He was known by the guards particularly as an oddball stealing women's underwear. So, Wednesday, September 11th, 1991. I was 17 days old. Just in case anyone was wondering. Patricia and Michael dropped the kids off at Patricia's mother's house so they could go to the pub and collected them later that evening. So again, they were drinking. They had gotten... Clondalkin is a suburb of Dublin City and they had so where they used to go drinking in Dublin City even after they had moved out so again like that was her whole kind of circle of friends and I was in there anyway when they got home they began fighting over cigarettes yeah like and, and apparently he found like Patricia wanted him to go out and get smokes he didn't want to and I think he found a box with like one left in it so they were fighting they, for it no I think they, they, it all calmed down because he found one and was like oh. I'll go in the morning and this is all according to Bambrick by the way so Bambrick said that things quietened down after the argument and they went to bed together according to Bambrick they later started to get intimate and she let him tie her up as she would every now and then as it gave him a great thrill 
that's a quote like <laughs> i would never have put it like that yeah um he also stuffed tights in her mouth and tied them around her head he said they had done this before a number of times but she didn't always enjoy it so it, it sounds like he, you know she kind of just was like all right fine like let's get it over with he admitted later that there was a small bit of a struggle before he tied her up that night when he heard her gasping for air and realized that she was dead he panicked and tried to untie the tights, but they were so tight that he had to go and get a scissors and cut them. By the time he came back, it was it was too late. So he took Patricia's body and hid it in the box room of the house. The box room just being the, the smallest bedroom. He hid the body in the box room of the house while the children slept. He later dismembered Patricia's body with a paper knife and a junior hacksaw. He put the pla- he put it in plastic bags and disposed of her in a quote unquote dump in Balgadi. Sounded like it was just a wasn't an actual like dump. It was just like a wasteland sort of. Apparently, he was wearing Patricia's underwear and clothes throughout this this whole time. And I was trying like different sources said different things. So the next day, he brought them. He brought he brought the kids back to Patricia's mom's house. Uh, or sorry, he brought the kids to school. And they would go to Patricia's mom's house after school, which is just was their their thing. Like, <clears throat> so I'm not sure if he um, dismembered her body during the night or waited and came back while the kids were in school. There was different sources saying different things, and a paper knife. I'm pretty sure is a, just a box cutter, a Stanley knife. Um, Patricia's mom used to mind the two kids after school and she would also collect Patricia's loan parents payment every week so she was expecting Patricia to call out to call over that afternoon but only Bambrick arrived which wasn't too uh, unusual but again she should have been there she usually called over uh, I think every day so Bambrick told Patricia's mother on Friday that they had had another fight and that she had left the house to go to her mother's but obviously she never showed up. He reported her missing that Sunday at Bridewell Garda Station, which was Patricia's mother's local station. He said that she left on the 12th of September, so that was the Thursday, wearing a mustard yellow cardigan, black skirt and white sandals, and he had not seen her since. He said he assumed she was staying with friends, but by Sunday he was starting to get suspicious. So she's already supposedly missing like three whole days now. The guards went straight to St. Ronan's Park where they lived um, with their investigation. At this stage, it was just a missing person's investigation. So they interviewed all the neighbors where they found out that nobody really knew them. But they had often heard them, you know, arguing and shouting in the house. And that the night before she went missing, they had even heard screams coming from the house. This is a quote from a, a policeman involved in the investigation. Neighbours heard a ferocious row in the early hours of the morning. There was a lot of screaming and shouting. Then it all went quiet. The next door neighbour said that she saw Patricia. This actually confused me. Because there's a lot of dates and days like thrown into this. So apologies if it does get like a bit muddled up. I'm just trying to put all the information and all the facts. So the next door neighbour said that she was that she saw Patricia the night of the 12th around 9pm dressed just how Bambrick described her 
Apparently, she could remember this specifically because she said to her daughter, quote, Look, there goes Patricia, not a bother on her, even though she had heard all the commotion the night before. Louise, the youngest daughter, was placed in the care of her maternal aunt immediately after Patricia went missing. So they probably saw Bambrick in Patricia's clothes. So that was one thing that I had thought of, yeah. But then if the neighbor had made a point of actually seeing her walking down the, down the road, like, if you're going to say, oh, look, there's Patricia, you're not going to think, and, and you don't know them that well. You know, like, if she just looked out her window and saw some random person in these clothes, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, there's Patricia. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know, so that just that comment from the neighbor, though. Or maybe that, oh, yeah. Was, okay. like, just really confusing to me. I, I just yeah, kind of threw right. me off anyway. Mm-hmm. But it, it correlated to the story. And so it kind of threw the guards off. Um, the police investigation came to a halt shortly after it had begun. They just ran into brick walls, basically. There was nothing they could do. Um, and Bambrick started to tell people that Patricia probably ran off to England but her family were adamant that she would never leave her kids like that and supposedly she had really cut back on her drinking and was actively trying to be a better mom and it was like her family and friends just they were all so like like, no her kids were her everything like she would never do that and they were just kind of baffled so on we go to another lady Mary Cummins it's a really sad story this this woman's whole whole life story it's like a tom Waits song so born in december 1956 she spent her first four years in an orphanage in dublin after being given up for adoption by her um teenage mother who was actually from wales she never found out about her dad her dad was just an unknown so in 1960 she was adopted by dublin couple bob and bridget cummins the couple had adopted another girl, Josephine. No, oh, I only just now realised that that was Bambrick's nickname. And there was only four months between the two girls, so they became known as the Cummins twins. And that sounded like it was really nice. They used to dress up in the same clothes and stuff like that and just sound like, you know, all their dreams had, been, had kind of come true after being adopted from the orphanages and stuff. But it turned out uh, Bob, the, the adoptive father, was an abusive drunk and would beat Bridget quite often. Bridget, the adoptive mother, passed away when Mary was only 15, and Bob, the father, died five years later of a heart attack. So that that just left the two girls with absolutely nothing. Um, At 21, she began a six-year-long relationship with a separated man who had had three children before. This man was supposedly abusive too. He died from cancer and left Mary a very small inheritance, which she quickly blew through and was left homeless. I think what happened was she went from having never had any money to like all of a sudden here's a little lump sum and she thought oh this is great and drank it all away by the sounds of things. But yeah like I said her that fellow was like not a nice man either. Her children were taken into care and after a little while she managed to actually get housed again and was living in the Liberties, which is a neighbourhood in Dublin, where she met another man and had a child with him called Samantha. She apparently liked to spend her days in pubs, especially Thursdays, which was when people would get their lone parents allowance. Oh, I thought it was like a buy one, get one free thing. uh, (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if they did that kind of thing back then, but uh, 
you know, you would get like your social welfare, your loan parents and stuff like that. Those payments would come through on a Thursday. So you oh, okay. go out, do a bit of shopping and then sit in the pub for the whole day. And as well, back then, kids were allowed in pubs. I don't know how it was here, but I remember I would go with one of my uncles and the pub where we went was in Dunleary. So it like was up high and looked out over the sea and he'd give me like whatever, like 20p. And I'd go and like look out the big telescope. So that would be me, like, entertained for fucking hours. But, yeah, there would constantly be kids, like, running around. People all smoking in there and all. So, anyway, this Thursday was no different. On July 24th, 1992, 10 minutes, 10 months after Patricia Magali went missing, Mary collected her lone parents' allowance and went shopping with her daughter on Mead Street in Dublin. Around 5.30 p.m., she went for a drink with friends in Carr's Pub on Francis Street. While she was drinking, Samantha was playing with another young girl, Adrian, who was there with her dad. Bom, bom, bom. Two of Mary's friends later called to the pub and took Samantha home. But Mary kept on drinking, talking to Adrian's father. Later on, Mary dropped her shopping back off at home and went with Bambrick to his house to drop off Adrian. Uh, at St. Ronan's Park, so the same house where he lived with Patricia, where he asked a local girl to babysit his kids for him. They then continued the, their pub crawl, went to several different pubs having drinks together and returned to Bambrick's house in the early hours of the morning. So he told Gardy what happened next was almost word for word what happened to Patricia, except that this time he had used a wheelbarrow to make dumping the body parts easier. So that's why I just didn't want to go back into it again. It's literally uh, his confession of how he killed her. was exactly like systematic how he had killed Patricia Magali. Two days later, Mary's boyfriend slash baby daddy reported her missing uh, on July 26th. The Gardaí went straight to Bambrick as he was the last person she was seen with. And he just said... No, like, she went on home. We went out for drinks together, yeah, but that was the end of it. She went back home. I went my way, she went her way, and that was it. There was no, like, she was just a missing person at this stage, as was Patricia. So the police couldn't do anything. Right, no body, no crime. Exactly, no body, no crime. No, like, they they didn't even go and, like, search the house or anything. Mm -hmm. They just thought, oh, well. Where did he dispose of her body? Uh, oh, less, same thing? Yeah, less than a mile away from Patricia's. Oh, like in the same dump? The same, yeah, wasteland dump area. Yeah. Um, So, this story is infuriating in yeah. terms of, like, just the injustice is, is ridiculous. So, in April of 1995, right, this is three whole years later, during a re-examination of a missing women of all missing women cases in Ireland due to the reinvestigation of Annie McCarrick, who was an American who disappeared in June of 1993. Detectives finally found the link between, between Patricia McGauley and Mary Cummins, even though the detectives went to this man who had reported his own wife missing. They never found that link before when they were questioning him about this other missing woman. But anyway... Um, 
So the FBI and all were involved in the case of Annie McCarrick. It's another really sad story. And actually only this year, they were due to send another team of people back to Ireland to try and finally clear it up. Um, But then the pandemic happened, so I don't know if That's it took insane. off or not. Yeah, still going on. Yeah. They're so limited in what they can do. Anyway. Michael Bambrick, who was also a sex offender, don't forget. Yeah. So. Um, kind of the basis around this whole fucking story. Yeah, like <laughs> this fucking weirdo. So they still had no proof. Mm hmm. So then one day, Adrian, Michael's daughter, who was 12 years old at this stage, mm-hmm. went to the went to her local guard station and told the guards that her father had been abusing her. He had locked her in a garden shed, denied her of food, beaten her. Apparently he killed pets out of pure anger and she told him that she had also been sexually abused. While they had her there, they were like, oh, this is perfect. I'm sure there's all sorts of, you know, things about her being a minor. But they said, they asked, do you recognize this woman? Like, do you know Mary Cummins? And she said, she remembered her like very clearly. Um... She said that she remembered Mary Cummins coming home with them from Carr's pub that night. And she also remembered her coming back with Bambrick even like later, like earlier on in the early hours of the morning. She still had a Coca-Cola flask that Mary had given her. And the the police were able to confirm with Mary's nephew that he had given it to Mary as it was a promotional item. And not something that could just be bought. So it was uh, pretty like key evidence that she had definitely been there. And also, Adrian said that the next morning, Mary was gone, but her shoes were still there. Mm. And she also said that Bambrick had burned them to get rid of them later on. No shit. Yeah. Okay, so at this point, the police went to um, Bambrick's house. Mm-hmm. And again, there's like stuff that kind of didn't add up. They didn't have a search warrant for the place. But I think it, like a child welfare officer was sent there. Because when they went, they said like they weren't able to confirm or deny that she'd been like locked in the shed and stuff like that. But they said that the house was like filthy and not fit for a child. Yeah. So she was actually sent then to live with the other daughter that was never returned to Bambrick in the first place. So now the two girls are living with Patricia's um, sister. Parents. Oh, sisters. Okay. Yeah. So that's one happy thing. Yay. Yay. The sisters are back together. Um, on the 23rd of January in 1995, Bambrick was arrested on five charges of sexually assaulting a minor. So this was before the link was made um, between the two missing women. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that was also when uh, Adrian was taken off him. So he had somehow like sublet the house that he was living in, even though I thought that that was a social housing thing. Like it was all really confusing. Yeah. Um. I mean, what he was doing was probably illegal. Yeah. But you know? he had also somehow become homeless in this. So mm-hmm. I think it was all just because he obviously knew that the guards weren't able to get into the house. They didn't have access. They couldn't get a search warrant or anything like that. 
um, while this was going on. So he was then homeless and living in a hostel. In this hostel, he met another woman, Stella Mooney, a young single mother of two. By January, she was pregnant with Bambrick's child. Damn. Yeah, so this is all like pointing to signs that he was like sociopathic. Like he, he was very right, manipulative right. and um, all that, all the good things. Because of this, the council, the, the local government, were able to get him back into a house. Because that's how they work. They're like, oh, you clearly need it more than, you know, other people because now they're expecting a baby. So anyway, they sent them back to St. Teresa's Gardens. Where his strangeness all kind of kicked off. And where his nickname of the Knicker Knicker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, started. Uh, knicker being underwear. ladies underwear. And Knicker being... A thief. Yeah. Um, That's perfect. Yeah. So the knicker knicker. <laughs> <laughs> um, I bet they were pleased with themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so the neighbors had allowed their children to mix with the kids of uh, Bambrick and his girlfriend. Uh, I will say I'm not sure whether his kids were back allowed in his custody, like maybe part time or anything like that. But certainly uh, Stella Mooney's kids were living with them. Within months, there were allegations that he had interfered, that's not my wording, um, with two local children, and the women of the flats demanded action, flats being apartments. The residents picketed and ran him out of the place. Um, and this is a quote. We were convinced that he had killed the two women. We had already tried and convicted him of that, said Thomas Toomey, a member of the Residents Association. So they were rehoused two more times and in both um, both times they were rehoused, the local residents realized who he was and ran him out of the place again. Yeah. So at this stage, I'm feeling sorry for this lady, Stella, yeah, who's pregnant and, mm-hmm. you know, all this is being said to her. So anyway, this happened again and again and Bambrick was kept under surveillance this whole time. By the locals? Uh, no, by the police. Oh. Um, yeah, but each time he was moved, the locals recognized him or were tipped off. Yeah. So, um, in that's the meantime... That's a fucking community right there. Yeah, and that's one thing I will say. I I didn't grow up anywhere near Dublin city centre. Um, but the, the flats in the city, people that I know, once you're in there, you're like, they're all family like you know, yeah um people can't talk highly enough about it and uh the term it takes a village mm-hmm. is very much that type of community yeah okay so in the meantime the police actually um approached stella herself to warn her about you know what what was going on give them all and i think they were trying to get you know her to kind of spy on them Anyway, in the in the meantime, by April 1995, the Gardaí were finally given permission by the council to search his old property. The people who had been there um, moved out and they were convinced that, they, that he had killed the women and buried them in the back garden. They got in excavators and 
I don't know how delicate they were about it. Like they were using machinery to dig up this back garden and found absolutely nothing. But in May, they got decent forensic detectives in into the actual house and they used like sonar is that the yeah sonar detection equipment and everything like to look through the house and the foundation shit like that just to see if there was anything on on you or yeah weird there found nothing but they did find blood on at least 50 pieces of wood in the house um like floorboards and most of them were in this box room where he had dismembered both women. And I also saw on a different um, article that I couldn't find then, there's so many different like pieces on this, that there was a blood-soaked mattress. And when the police questioned him on it, he just said, um, oh, Patricia had a miscarriage. And they said, okay. What the yeah. fuck? Oh, lady problems. I understand. Oh, God. That's my understanding of it. Yeah. So... Periods, vaginas, get over it. Menstrual blood. So that was May. On June 24th, he was arrested in a kitchen run by the, I think it's the Capuchin Capuchin brothers. I'm honestly not sure how you pronounce that. That, Is that kind of a a type of monkey? That type of monkey, yeah, I think so. But it's also a type of monk. um, Which is a religious order who provide food and shelter for homeless people in Ireland at least. So he was actually arrested for having threatened another man with a shotgun. Again, I couldn't find any information on that. But this was why he was arrested. And he was also in the possession of a spear gun. Where he got these and where he was keeping them, I have no idea. He was homeless at this time. Like, what the fuck? But anyway, the guards knew, the police knew that if they arrested him on these charges, they could keep him for up to 48 hours. Within 13 hours, he had admitted to killing both women. Damn. And told them, word for word, what I told you earlier. Yeah. How, how it happened in both cases. He told Gardy where he had buried them, and they were able to find partial remains, which were identified by dental and DNA comparisons. There was far too much decomposition uh, to determine an actual cause of death. And this is where it gets really fucking annoying. When it came to trial... This is in my notes. This piece of absolute shit denied murder, but admitted manslaughter on both accounts, saying that he didn't mean to do it. So according to the Irish legal system, that's fine. He admitted it. He admitted how it happened, that it was manslaughter. He didn't mean to do it, but he still went ahead and disposed of their remains the way he did. And a quote from the Irish Times says, he spoke of seeing Miss Cummins' head where he had dumped it and bashing it with a concrete block. This was on trial, he said this. He appeared to show the utmost remorse and said, I'm glad I've got everything off my chest. The two girls can have a decent burial now. He kept repeating that um, he kept repeating that he wanted them to have a good Catholic burial, like that would make everything better. And like... (sighs) It was so fucking annoying. Like he just kept saying shit like this, and you know, yeah, he was obviously putting on airs. So sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the best part: because he was such a good boy, and he confessed and pled guilty to manslaughter, according to the Irish judicial system, the judge literally could not give him a life sentence. He was given 15 years for the manslaughter of Patricia McGauley, and 18 years for Mary Cummins. 
both senses both sentences to run concurrently with one year suspended for time served concurrently means he's serving both sentences together not joining them like you know not 15 and then 18 yeah it's 15 and 18 together at the same time so just 18 so just 18 yeah yeah then minus one year because he had already spent time in custody so 17 17 and the judge was quoted saying he was concerned with two matters the propensity of Bambrick to reoffend and constitutional problems where a life sentence appeared to be a non-mandatory option. His preference would have been to sentence the, quote, dangerous accused to life imprisonment for the horrific homicides. All this leads to this headline in 2009. Brutal sex killer freed after 13 years in jail for double slaying. As of 2016, he is still living in North inner Dublin city under a new name he has changed his appearance a few times and it's quite easy to find these separate pictures of him Um, sources say he regularly takes public transport to visit his pals in Dunleary and often goes for walks in the Phoenix Park still isn't working still living in social housing still living the exact same way as he was living before he just went away for a little while and this is typical of the Irish justice system. So for all of you who are living in anywhere in Dublin, keep an eye out for him. Because yeah. there he is. And another thing I'll say is like these two murders, like they were like he was already in that advanced stage of serial killing. Yeah. So I don't know what happened in between. Mm-hmm. But either way, there you go. There's your lovely heartwarming story. Yeah. So, and Michael Bambrick, if you can hear this, fuck you. Yep. <laughs> so there you go. Right. Well done, Ireland. Woo. <laughs> okay. All right, Dulce, tell us something that we can make jokes about. Okay. Today's story takes us to the oldest bed and breakfast in Fort Worth, Texas. Woo. That is still up and running. Lovely. Well, technically just bed because they don't serve breakfast anymore, <laughs> according to the reviews on TripAdvisor. <laughs> oh, <fucks laughs> We're talking about Miss Molly's Bed and Breakfast, located above the Star Cafe. Miss Molly's Bed. <laughs> yeah, Miss Molly's <laughs> Bed. Originally a boarding house in 1910 called the Palace Rooms, then renamed the Oasis during Prohibition, and then the Guyot Hotel in the 1940s. During this time, it became a brothel. Nice. There are eight rooms that can be booked for a stay, except for one that belongs to the current owner of Miss Molly's. A guest favorite is Miss Josie's room. The room is covered in red velvet fabric, even the ceiling. Miss Josie was a former madam of the place. And it's the only room with its own bathroom. How classy. All rooms have paranormal activity in them. Some more than most. Some more than most? Yeah. I mean, some more than others. Sorry. (laughs) Edit that out. Some more than most. (laughs) (laughs) The most. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The types of paranormal sightings are a mixture of full body apparitions of previous guests. 
or working girls of the past. You can catch the sweet smell of perfume when no one is around. Missing or moved items, inexplicable noises, voices, lights malfunctioning, unlocked doors refusing to open, extreme temperature changes and cold spots. Also, toilets flushing on their own, which can be handy if you've forgotten to pull the handle on these toilets. They have uh, those hanging handles, you know? Oh, the old school ones? Yeah. I've seen these kinds of toilets before, and I've been, like, transfixed by them. So it makes sense why you would forget <laughs> to flush. <laughs> I always feel like, yeah, no, I quite enjoy flushing them. Yeah. Uh, I think the first one that I'd seen ever was in Ireland when we went to that uh, bougie store. Oh. No. Oh, Avoca? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. In the Like in the outhouse? Mm-hmm. Paranormal investigators that have visited here have been able to catch picture evidence of spirits and EVPs. Some of this evidence is kept in the common room area of Miss Molly's. From what I've read, they tried to keep the decor from the early 1900s with antiques and stuff like that. There aren't any televisions or phones in the rooms either which sounds like the best way to disconnect from the internet. They even have a sign outside of one room that says, Street ladies bringing in sailors must pay for room in advance. <laughs> so let's get into the ghosts. Yes, please. I pulled this quote from Seaborne Paranormal Investigations. Miss Molly has also provided several EVPs. Most of these occurred in Miss Josie's room, and they started late in the night. At approximately 2.45 a.m. when everybody, except Haley and my dad, were asleep, you can hear a few seconds of obvious singing. By this point, the bars are quiet, there's no music, and the phenomenon doesn't last very long. Also, from Josie's room, perhaps 15 or 20 minutes later, a little girl can be heard speaking the name Alan. An hour or so after this, the recorder picked up what sounds like very suggestive moaning. Which makes sense because it's a brothel. Oh, yeah. I always think I'm more like, oh, oh like, me. I'm a ghost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, wait, the other one was just like, Alan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could have been like a, like a working lady with just a really high pitched voice and they thought it was a little girl, you know, coupled yeah. with a suggestive moaning. Ah, yes. You feel me? Oh, maybe Alan was, Alan was quite the local legend. Yeah. Nice. He was a local stud. <laughs> <laughs> but he still had to pay for it. Yeah, he still had to pay for it. Good, good. Alan! <laughs> <laughs> There's no freebies. All right, so this next quote is also from the site. It was a comment on Seaborn's page detailing their time there. This user's name is Carly. I stayed here for a bachelorette party weekend in march of 2015 we had balloons and decorations everywhere but i never will forget waking up around 5:15 a.m to a tickling feeling on my face it was a feather dick no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> a feather dick <laughs> what the fuck is that <laughs> uh, uh, that was a joke <laughs> anyways uh she didn't write that Everyone <laughs> can't because I'm picturing it's like it's like a peak dildo with like feathers on it. You're really getting into this, aren't you? <laughs> In my head. Anyways, every one of the balloons we had 
used in that room were lining my body from head to toe and hovering over me. What? I woke my friend uh, that I was sharing a bed with. And when she woke up, she witnessed the same thing. It was wild. So, like, her friend was watching this shit happen, too. Like All these balloons just collected. All these fucking balloons, like, lined her body, like, the way her body was laying. That's bad shit. Isn't that fucking crazy? (laughs) Next, we have an account from Becky Vickers, who is a part of her own investigative team. Shout out, Becky. Becky Vickers says, All of a sudden, I could hear very loudly and plainly boots coming up the stairs. I thought, well, a guest must be coming back from the rodeo, as that was why all the other guests were there. So I just sat up straighter on the couch, you know. When no one is looking, you kick your feet up. And, well, I just kept waiting. (laughs) and waiting and waiting to see someone come up the stairs because I knew the only way you could get into the hotel was with a key but no one ever came up but step by step I could hear them coming so I began thinking to myself really how long does it take to walk up those stairs (laughs) so I started taking pictures and walked over to the top of the stairs and looked down there but there wasn't anyone there. But here's this creepy part. The footsteps I heard just kept coming. Step by step by step. I was in such disbelief. I was hearing the steps of heavy boots walking right up toward me, but yet there was no one there. I wish I could say my heart wasn't about to jump right out of my skin, but it was. I thought something or someone was going to walk right through me. Just after a few minutes, they stopped. They just stopped. So, like, check out our page. I did, obviously, because this is where I got this. You can see the pictures of where she was standing when she heard the steps. You're literally in the way of someone coming upstairs. So there's no way that they could, like, jump out of sight if someone really was coming upstairs. Yeah. It's not like a winding staircase. It's just a short, straight shot up to the next floor. It's like... So it's a door, right? And right in front of the, like, say you're coming in from outside or wherever. You open the door and the set of stairs is right in front of your face. Yeah. And there's a landing. Uh Uh-huh. And there's a landing right above those stairs. Mm -hmm. So that's where she was. You know what I'm saying? There was. There was. Nowhere else. There was nowhere else to go. You only go up. (laughs) The only way is up. Right. So that, that shit was crazy to me. But yeah, so that's Miss Molly. That's my little story. Uh, my sources are BexGhostHunters.com, Seaborn Paranormal Investigations, and Miss Molly's Hotel. Right on. So if you're ever in the Fort Worth area, look up Miss Molly's. Miss Molly's bed. Yeah. So like, if you if you don't mind communal bathrooms, yeah. you know, stay in any of the rooms. But if it's a thing for you, and I imagine it would be a thing for me, then definitely book Mrs. Jos- Miss Josie's room. Oh, yeah, because she has an actual bathroom in her room. Yeah. An ensuite. So it's like a big... Um, Hostel. 
No, it's it's a small little place. I'm just saying, like, it's a big attraction for for people. Like, it's the thing that brings people that it's known for its frequent paranormal oh, activity. Okay, okay, you know, yeah. so like, if you book a room, they know why you're staring, why you're staying there instead mm-hmm. of like the fucking Marriott or some shit. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Fair enough. Fair enough. So, yeah. All right, y'all. So, uh, got a few listener stories. Um. These were obtained um, when we were visiting. Uh, we made a house call to this lady, and her husband uh, basically was um, trying to get an update on what we were been up to. And we told them like, "Hey, we started we started a podcast," and so he just started regurgitating all these stories that his his dad had told him. So he's from Pakistan and he was saying that um, one of the stories that his dad told him was when he was visiting some friends in Africa, uh, they were driving down a road in the middle of the night and it was him driving. There was one of his friends in the passenger side and one other friend in the back seat and there was a lady waving them down in the middle of the road at night for a ride and their friends were like hey you know why don't you slow down and give her a ride and his dad was like hell no i don't know this lady and so you know they kept driving and apparently the lady started chasing down the car. And but the thing was, she was running next to it. So they sped up, you know, yeah. 70 miles an hour. Get the fuck away from this. And the lady was somehow keeping up with the, keeping up with the car. And so he was like, fuck it, I'm, go- I'm flooring it. So again, uh, flooring it to them is like one thirty, And so they floored it. And she was still keeping up with the car. And he said that the car started slowing down on its own. And then it finally, you know, came to a halt. Came to a halt. And the lady opened the door to the back seat, got in. And said, hey, can you drop me off over there? Just vaguely pointed in the direction forward. Nowhere in particular, Mm -hmm. but just pointed forward. No one said a word. They just proceeded to drive on until she finally said, you can drop me off here. And then she opens the door and she just disappears. So that's the first story. Okay. (laughs) But I just want to say... I think we should get like a fuck that button. <laughs> so I can just keep hitting and be like, fuck that. <laughs> F- fuck that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Another one that uh, he told us was, so he said his father always slept on his stomach. It's just a thing that he does. Apparently, it's it's more common than I thought because I've talked to a few people about their sleeping habits and they sleep on their stomach, which is fucking insane to me. Yeah, I couldn't do it. 
Um, so anyways, so he sleeps on his stomach and he said that, um, and it might've been sleep paralysis, but he woke up in the middle of the night and he felt like he couldn't move. He said that he felt a weight on his back and he heard whispering (laughs) like right behind him, you know? Yeah. So he got really scared and he was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm going to see, I'm going to, you know, bite the bullet and see what the fuck is on me. So he turns around to look behind him. And apparently there's this, this, he said it was like an old looking lady that was sitting like on his lower back with long hair and really long nails and really sharp teeth. And when he looked at her, she was in the middle of, you know, I guess, whispering something. And when she saw that he was looking at her, she freaked the fuck out, screamed and slapped him square in his back and disappeared. And then he finally was able to get up. And apparently to this day, he still has a handprint on the on his back. Yeah, from when that happened. We're working on getting photos of this. Yeah. But my God. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, but okay, like I, I'm, I'm inclined to believe this because, for a few reasons, um, if you tell a story like that, if I tell you, Adam, I got the imprint of this fucking witch on my back. What's the first thing you're gonna ask me? Are you high? Are no. you okay? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, I guess it's not it's not common. I would be like, let me fucking see. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So if you're telling a story like that, like yeah, I got I still got the marks, I'm be like, okay, yeah. well let's look. You know, <laughs> show me, show me, take off your shirt. So that's what I'm saying. Like, of course he's gonna have people saying show me. Yeah, and he and can be like, nah, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> like nah, man, no pics. If, if you ain't got no pics, it, it didn't, didn't happen. happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyways. um, So yeah, that's what I think. That's why I'm inclined to believe that. And on top of that, um, like a- according to him, things like that are are natural. You know, it's it's very common to come across people or to come across people that have been cursed, explain things because it's a curse or mm-hmm. gin or whatever because of the culture yeah and it's it makes more common and it makes a lot of sense because you know um like in mexico they they rely a lot on brujeria like you know like how we were talking about the episode with with Manelli. like politicians famous people they get in on with with you know brujas and brujos and curanderos because they believe that stuff you know, yeah. and that's the cartel believes in that stuff, you know. So and there's there's power in that faith, mm-hmm. you know. So it, I th- that's why I think it, it's it makes sense why it, it's prevalent in Pakistan. Why? Why wouldn't it be? You know. Yeah, yeah it definitely seemed like it was um, much more uh, just the way of life over there. Yeah. Like, I don't know, this shit happens and that's it. As opposed to here where. A lot you more know, cynical. Yeah, we're a lot more cynical, a lot more uh, 
inclined to believe in other things or or whatever but also it was very interesting getting their point of view and um yeah definitely some freaky ass stories and hopefully more to come i have one more story that i remember oh okay that they were telling us that i thought was pretty funny um so he was saying that when he was younger he was not not the guy the guy's dad again everything happened to the to this guy's dad yeah that he was him and his friend were walking down the street one night and behind them there was a couple oh, yeah. walking as well and they said that it seemed like they were going the same pace as them but somehow the couple ended up catching up to them and eventually passing them up mm-hmm. and as they were passing them up the dad started catcalling the lady and but the couple ignored them you know but he just kept kept cat calling her yeah supposedly she was this beautiful woman you know and as they were passing her as they were passing them they noticed that they were super fucking tall you know mm-hmm. and he was saying it as if there's not any there's it's it's rare to see tall people in pakistan yeah yeah like but he, they were both the couple were extraordinarily tall. They were much taller than than them two. Anyways, uh, as they were, as the dad was catcalling the couple or the lady, um, and they kept walking. They were ignoring them, but they st- started getting shorter as they were walking. It was almost as if there was like some invisible escalator. Yeah, that they couldn't down. see. Yeah, taking them down, and then the couple just vanished into thin air. Well, like yeah, like down into the ground. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 Weird shit. Yeah, weird shit, man. Like, and then you know, um, the lady we we're making a house call to. She was just telling us that she knows several people back in Pakistan that they're possessed with jinn and sometimes with multiple jinn. And uh, jinns, for those who don't know, are just like a type of um, like entity, basically. Believe yeah. in like uh, seems to be mostly Middle Eastern um, mm-hmm. tradition, but yeah. and they're almost like some sort of somewhere between like a demonic thing and like fairies, where they can just be like tricksters or where they can be really evil. Yeah, like the the way i understood it is it's it's like a a kind of people they have lives just like we do only we can't see them you know they have families they have children just like we do but they're not supposed to interact with us and generally the ones that interact with humans do it with bad intentions and if someone is possessed by one of these things it's because someone who does black magic cursed someone else and now they're possessed by one of these things or if a jinn falls in love with a human and takes possession of that human yeah and then there's other like you know if you go into their territory and blah 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 yeah i'm sure there's like we'll probably end up trying to cover it as a, a whole topic or maybe even multiple parts of a thing because there's a lot in it and um but yeah, so that that's our that's our listener story segment for this week. Um, 
So yeah, happy Friday, everybody. This will be <laughs> out on a Friday. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, we really hope you enjoy it. So yeah, stay out of trouble. And if you can't, tell us about it. Yeah, we want your stories. <laughs> We're sick of saying this. <laughs> Send us all your stories. Um, you can DM us. You can email us. Uh, weeklycreep at gmail.com twitter instagram youtube at weeklycreep find us there don't worry about messaging us or anything like that we are more than approachable we love interacting with our listeners we're friendly people yeah believe it or not and we're polite sometimes hey you are (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so feel free to send us any stories any feedback any suggestions anything that you want to hear from us or maybe oh and rate us because we're on itunes now on itunes and whoever gave us that four star rating i'm coming for you we got a four star rating fucking four star rating what why they just couldn't understand me i don't know they didn't give a reason at least give us a reason yeah so anyway that's (laughs) yeah bs yeah no so we appreciate all our listeners and if you are listening on itunes please um rate and review if you're listening on youtube please subscribe like do all the youtube shit if you're listening on spotify just keep listening and anywhere else and yeah follow us on instagram twitter wherever and i think that's it yeah that'll 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 do us so all right Bye. Later, creeps. <laughs> <laughs>